Reconstructionist Radio presents Justice in His Kingdom, examining the religious nature of justice with Jerry Lynn Ward and Roger Oliver. Hello, this is Jerry Lynn Ward and Roger Oliver. Welcome to our second episode of Justice in His Kingdom. And the name of this episode is How Common Law Advances Justice and Christian Liberty. And Roger and I are very pleased to welcome Brent Allen Winters to be our guest on the on the episode today. Uh, Brent is an American geologist, a common law lawyer, an author, and a teacher. He grew up on a farm north of Moonshine, Illinois. That's very interesting. Served as a diver, U.S. Navy Mobile Diving Unit 1 and aboard carrier USS Coral Sea. He's worked as a geologist and a mine operator. He ran for U.S. Congress, and he has argued cases before juries both at the state and the federal level. He's also the author of the book, uh, which is the basis of this episode, uh, uh, which is Excellence of Common Law Compared and Contrasted with Civil Law in Light of History, Nature, and Scripture. Brent, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. You know, Jerry, I've never met anybody from A&M that wasn't well-spoken. Well, thank you. Thank you. And here's another one. (laughs) Have you ever been to A&M? I had two boys that went there, and and they went to the Maritime Academy down at Galveston, near Galveston. So I didn't go to the main campus. But uh, I was down there. But no, I've never. I guess the simple answer is no, I haven't been to the main campus. <laughs> but your sons are Aggies, so yeah, you, yeah. you've been blessed by knowing them. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I'm interested in what kind of law you practice. Well, generally speaking, if somebody gets out a checkbook, I'll consider trying it. Um, it doesn't make any difference what it is. And try to like it. But I like, by nature, I like mining law, and I like trust law. And that's what I've increasingly tried to do over the years. I have litigated uh, in criminal law. I've done criminal work, state and federal. But uh, I don't like that as much. It's intense, of course. I like uh, the concept of trust law and mining law. Mining law, of course, is property law. Mining law arose in America. Uh, spontaneously. And amazingly, it arose in Mexico, South America, Spain. It arose in the uh, tin binders uh, courts of Cornwall, England, all arose uh, and by men who were unformally educated. But when they got, for example, to California or the Galena fields of Illinois or the, the um, gold fields of, uh, and silver fields of Nevada, they had to have some kind of government. There was no government there. They got together and they marked off mining districts, and they set up rules, and they held meetings. And those cases from those mining districts in America uh, eventually wound their way through the high courts of the states. Uh, some cases, they had to wait till the high court of the state was formed, as in California, and uh, to the U.S. Supreme Court. And Justice Field was there in the earliest days of uh, the gold mining days, of the rush days of California at Marysville in Yuba City. And... Um, President of the United States appointed him at that time to Supreme Court of the United States because of his intimate knowledge. But all of the mining law all over the world is fundamentally the same. And it arose again spontaneously as the need arose. 
and it's been affirmed by our courts here in America. It's a fascinating study. In the back of the book, that uh, the excellence of the common law that you mentioned, I have a long appendix about mining law and how it developed and how it's an example of how common law develops spontaneously among men. Well, yeah, that gets me to the next question, because this book that you've written, The Excellence of Common Law, is like a postgraduate course. It's about a thousand pages, and I'm just interested in, in why you became interested in common law to the extent that you would put so much work into such a fabulous book. Well, um, I had a professor in law school who was a comparative lawyer. And the comparative law is a subject that at one time was required in American law schools. And now, then it became an elective and whether or not it's taught now, I get the impression I had a friend back at Suffolk University that was a comparative lawyer and he couldn't talk him into teaching the course there. Because the push on now is that everything's the same. Men are the same as women. All religions are the same. Uh, all government and all law is fundamentally the same, they say, and so we don't want to teach people that it's different because that creates <laughs> animosity. Well, that's um, that's fantasy, and that's one of the tenets of the law of the city. But this fellow I was telling you about, this professor, he's gone now. He was uh, not a young man then, but he had been a prosecutor at Nuremberg. And the threshold question, he told me, I used to like to sit in his office and ask him questions. He let me sometimes. But he told me the threshold question at Nuremberg was, which law are we going to prosecute the Nazis under? We could prosecute them under their own law, which was the law of the city, the Code of Justinian, the old law of the Roman Empire, or the law of the land, our common law. And the law of the city governed at that time, as it does today, every country on the continent of Europe and almost all of Asia, Asia, Japan, Imperial Japan's under the German form of the code. Um, France is under the French form of the of Justinian code. And and of course, the canon law of the Church of Rome is Justinian's code, and so that's a chief vehicle of that point of view. Of course, it's imperial. It always has an emperor, the law of the city. Uh, it may not call him an emperor, but he has the powers of an emperor. He is the law, like Adolf Hitler took that upon himself within his own country. Henry VIII tried to do the same thing in England. Well, this fellow said that was a threshold question, and they decided that they would prosecute the Nazis under the Roman code, the code of Justinian, called the code of Bismarck in Germany, or no, they would not prosecute them under that code, because if they had prosecuted them under that code, the law of the city, uh, they would have all been exonerated, because it's a complete defense to any crime in, under the law of the city, which includes almost every country on the faces of our earth, it's a complete defense to any crime that you obeyed the government. If you obey the government, it can't be a crime. Just like we'd say as Christian folk, if we obey God, as crazy as it may sound to the rest of the world, it's not a crime. Uh, and that's the same thing if it's really God's command. Now, you got to put that in there. But for them, there is no higher law than the state. The state, in fact, is stands in the place of God on earth. The state, as Hegel said, is God walking among men on earth. As the Pope of Rome says, I am Jesus Christ, vicar on earth. Vicar, it says right on that big, tall Dagon hat he has, the hat of the mouth of the fish of Dagon, says uh, uh, vicarious. What does that mean? Vicarious, that's vicar. That means vice. That means in the place of. It means instead of. And in the Newer Testament, the equivalent Greek preposition to that Latin preposition is ante. 
Antichrist means in the place of Christ. And that's what the well, the city claims for the government in its in its country. So they prosecuted the Nazis not under the law of the city, but under our law of the land. The phrase law of the land used to be the word for our common law. Uh, one of the phrases for our common law. There have been many through the centuries. Law of the land is one of them. And uh, we still used it at the time our country started. We included it in our Constitution of the United States. Uh, Article 6, this Constitution shall be the supreme law of the land. Well, that's a reference to due process. And common law is not a substantive law, fundamentally. It doesn't stress what ought to be done. It stresses, now watch the words, there's, there's a difference here. It, stress, it stresses how things ought to be done. How, not what. And uh, due process is not part of our common law. Our common law is Are due you still process. there, Brent? You say, how do you know that, Brent? Well, I'm in good company. Well, good authoritative company. And the Supreme Court of the United States, not the only one that have, ones that have said that, but um, Justice, Justice Taft makes that point a, a few decades ago. But he said there's no, there's no question that the phrase law of the land lifted out of Magna Carta, lex terra, but in our Constitution is the word a phrase for due process. And he went on to say that we cannot understand our Constitution of the United States unless we understand that it is awash in the phrases of our common law and it is informed by our common law. It explains nothing. Therefore, we must repair to our common law to even know what it means. Well, that's what they prosecuted the Nazis under. They all pled uh, just as they thought they would, um, I, as Eichmann did. He, he said, I obeyed the laws of my flag and my country. And the feet needs to be laid at their the fault. <laughs> the feet? No. The fault needs to be laid at the feet of the of the supreme leaders, uh, Hitler himself. Not my fault. I obeyed the government. Well, whether or not he was rightly executed or wrongly is not the point I'm making. The point I'm making is it's a complete defense to any crime under the law of the city. Lieutenant Calley. Lieutenant Calley. Even in, under our martial law, our, you know, G General Marshall uh, outranked Eisenhower. He was the one that was qualified to lead the troops into, into Europe, but he was kept at home, because, George Marshall, because Eisenhower had a German name. It was more intimidating. <laughs> so, but but uh, Marshall was a high-ranking uh, general officer, and when the war was over and our boys were prosecuted for war crimes, and some of our boys committed war crimes, uh, he put out a general order to the court's marshal, and he said, he said, um, Obedience to orders um, can be mitigation, mitigation of the crime accused, but it cannot be exoneration. It cannot completely exonerate, but it can mitigate. Well, that's our common law. Now, how he came to that conclusion, he probably had legal advisors. I don't know. But uh, even in our martial law, and the law of the city is a martial law, fundamentally. That's what it was. It arose out of the courts of Babylon through the Roman legions. And uh, it's the idea of applying martial law to every person. There is no jury. There's no fundamental rights that uh, are guaranteed, a right to remain silent and the right to counsel and all those things. So it's a, it's a martial law, and it's, it's swift and it's brutal, and it's meant for men on ships at sea and uh, men on fields of battle. That, there it works, but we don't want them to apply it to us. But that's increasingly what the evil empire tries to do.
Well, Brett, you, you talked about uh, this idea of the law of the land uh-huh. and being common law, but now people claim that Roe versus Wade is the law of the land. Mm-hmm. So can you distinguish that and, and kind of explain what common law uh, is when you when you answer this question yeah. and how it's distinct? I mean, you have done some of it with how it's distinguished from civil law. But what about the complication in that we have people, judges, lawyers, and others saying that the murder of children in the womb is the law of, or the legalization of the murder of children in the womb is the law of the land? Well, you you make an excellent point. Now, the law of the land, the law of the land is not a list of laws that anybody promulgates. The law of the land is a way, W-A-Y, and we mentioned a while ago, due process is our common law. It's not part of it. That's what it is. It's how we do things, not what we do. Jesus Christ didn't say, and it, it undergirds uh, the, the laws of nature, unwritten in the nature of creation. Our Declaration of 76 says, then it says the laws of nature is God. Well, Blackstone tells us that's our common law, fundamentally. The laws of nature, unwritten, lex non scripta, and the laws of nature, written, lex scripta. He says that's revealed religion. That's our Bible. That's what he. That's what lawyers in in England. That those are our forebears. Those are the ones that we are a common law country. We understood it that way. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, with common law, <coughs> there back with common law comes <laughs> I hope separation of powers. Separation of powers. In other words, the the courts are not the the Supreme Court or any courts are not the final word on anything in America, regardless of what the courts say. Neither is the executive branch, the president or the governor of your state, the final word on any matter. Neither is the legislator or the legislature the final word on any matter. No common law government is a perpetual, unending, perennial Mexican standoff. That's what it is. And that's the way it's supposed to be. It's been that way for centuries. We didn't invent anything new here. Well, separation of powers says this. It says that the courts have a responsibility to pass their opinion on what ought to be done in any particular situation. They have a duty to do that. That's why they call them opinions. And they, they call them findings. This is what we have found because they don't believe them. Well, historically, don't believe that courts make law. They make findings. And they have opinions. And we respect their opinions, and they wear black robes. That's all they have, really, fundamentally, is black robes and a little bit of dignity. And I hasten to add, though, Jerry, they've lost a lot of that dignity because what the courts have done. They've gone so far out of bounds with Roe v. Wade, for instance, and um, saying that men and, and men ought to get married and ought to have the right to do that, that they've lost their dignity. But that's all they have. But what they say is not law. It is not the law of the land. The law of the land, our common law, is not a list of laws. It's a way of life, W-A-Y. That's why the Older Testament, for instance, says that the old paths it talks about. And it talks about the word Torah. The word Torah, one of the most well-known Hebrew Old Testament words to speak of law, the verb form of that word fundamentally means the way pointed out with the index finger, the way pointed out. It's not a legalistic book in that respect. Jesus Christ said, I am the way. It's a path to get on. Then we think about Christian history and our own, our own uh, history as Protestant men and women. And we look at Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. What was it about? Well, he, he got it. 
he's talking about progress. He talks about a path you get on and you stay on the path. You don't deviate from the path. You deviate from the path. You have great despair and despondency. And he gives examples of that in his, in his book. But the Christian life, and of all decent life, the life that God commands of men is a way of doing things. I don't know everything. I don't have to tell people that. They know that. They ought to know that. I don't know anybody that knows everything. I don't know anybody that knows everything about law. The greatest lawyers in the world don't know anything about law. But what they ought to know how to do is demand due process. And that's what I've found I have to do a lot. I just say, now, wait a minute. This doesn't smell right. I don't think that my client has had a meaningful, meaningful, genuine opportunity to be heard here. Uh, and you got to have notice first. That's all what our common law fun is fundamentally about. Of course, there's a lot of the things that come with that too, right to trial by jury and how do you impanel the jury and who gets to be on the jury. That's all a matter of process. And the way the three branches of government function and the relationship they have, but the Supreme Court of the United States, its pronouncements are not the final word. If the president of the United States does not want to support or undergird or enforce what the Supreme Court says, he has, and he thinks it's unlawful, he, it's not an option. He has a duty not to enforce it. If the courts think the president is wrong, they have a duty to say so. If the legislature thinks that both of the other two branches are wrong, they have a duty to pass legislation to try to overcome it, to fashion legislation that will overcome it. But there was a man back about 1910, his name was Beard, B-E-A-R-D. And he wrote a book that wasn't very thick. He was a Quaker and a communist. And by the way, the Quakers have had trouble with communism. They, I mean, they have had that propensity for a long time. And for obvious reasons, they deny the fundamental, fundamental uh, nature of man uh, as, uh, as fundamentally tainted. He can't do anything to please God. He can do things to please men and do some good things, but he can't do anything to please God. Well, they took that position. Beard took that position. He wrote a book. And I, the book, back about 1910, the, the Supreme Court has, court has quoted it. And in that book, he tries to prove that the Supreme Court is the final word on, on law in America and the application of it. And he successfully persuaded men in the highest places in America, that was true. I read the book. I think I can see that he's wrong. I think I can see that he's a manipulator of words. He's very good at it, but he's wrong. And there's no place in our Constitution of the United States, which uh, is a brief of common law government, by the way. There's no place in there it says that the Supreme Court has the final word. I had a very well-known, well, I had two men on the radio, did a radio interview about 10 years ago, uh, pretty close together. One of them was Justice Moore. Uh, Alabama Supreme Court, and the other one was uh, Mike Ferris. And uh, those men are men that have done things that are commendable, and I support them in the main. But I asked them this question, and I thought I knew what I thought was the answer was, and I just wanted an audience to hear their answer. Uh, who, who's the final word uh, on what is law in America? Is it the Supreme Court of the United States? And they didn't give me a definitive answer. Now, it could be that they misunderstood the question. could be that I didn't speak it clearly. I don't know. I just know that I was surprised that they just didn't come out and say what I thought they would say, that um, everybody in America, not just the president and the governor and the legislature, but really everybody has a duty to do, do the right thing, regardless of what anybody says. And as I like to say, no man has a right. No man, no woman, nowhere 
has ever, and still doesn't, have a right to do wrong. That's a simple way to put it. And just because the Supreme Court says it doesn't make it right. Men, and now the people on the Supreme Court are so wound up and bound up in their own whims and difficulties, and always have been, but even more so now, they can't. They don't even know what sex they are anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're, they're going to tell me whether or not it's lawful for men to marry men, women to marry women, or we can murder babies? I don't think so. And if folk that don't believe that don't speak out and say otherwise and say it loudly and say it often, then when the judgment falls, it will fall on our heads too. That's what the Bible teaches. Back to you, Jerry. Well, it's going to have to be lawyers and judges also saying this because, uh, as you know, uh, disciplinary boards for lawyers in different states will often go against uh, lawyers for speaking out like this. You make an excellent point. I mean, even as I'm speaking now, I'm mindful of what the limits are. And the limits that are in the codes for ethics and discipline are not bad if they're understood or right. I'm not supposed to malign the court or the, the judges personally. You know, I understand that. But I do have a duty to say that they're wrong if they're wrong. And I'm saying it. That's wrong. And it shouldn't be followed because murder is against the law. And obedience to people in black robes does not exonerate you before your maker. And nobody in the final day will be able to stand before their maker and say, well, the Supreme Court said it was okay. That won't wash. Mm-hmm. And that's what, that's what the Christian life is all about. Hebrews chapter 5, every man, every woman must go to the scriptures and they must decide for themselves in the final analysis about their own individual behavior, what they're going to do and what they're going to say. But yeah, it is tough. Uh, how, do you, uh, how do you work in a system that then finally becomes lawless. That's the question. Go well, uh, Brent, uh, just yesterday in the paper was an article about one of our Texas judges. I think she might be uh, justice of the peace. And she was reprimanded by the Texas Commission on Judicial Conduct because she refuses in her official capacity to marry same-sex cup- couples. Wow. And, and that commission was for the, in, in the main, was appointed by a Republican governor or by Supreme, Texas Supreme Court justices, all of whom are Republicans. So that doesn't seem to make much difference uh, what your political label is. People are afraid to, and I understand why. Of all people, I understand. Uh, the government carries blackjacks and clubs. The only tool they have is force and threat of force. That is the only tool government has. Oh, they can try to persuade you, but that doesn't go very far with them. They just want to be able to wield force, and they can remove you from your office, take your living away from you, your security, take your license away, all those things. That's true. But uh, the Bible is clear. The laws of nature's God, as our declaration says, um, do not fear him who can destroy the body, but fear him who can cast or throw, literally hurl, body and soul into hell. Uh, That's an important consideration. And all of the 12-man jury that Jesus Christ impaneled to to, um, witness the evidence of his Messiahship, they all all said, well, I'm not going to change my tune. And they all were murdered except one, as far as tradition tells us. Uh, That's the example we have. Tough. It's a tough, uh, it's a tough example, but there it is. Back to you. Well, I, I want to ask you a question about legal training because 
I think that most law, in fact, I've had lawyers tell me, well, the courts have decided that common law is in effect. I don't know where they're getting that, but how has uh, legal training d helped undermine our common law traditions, first of all, and secondly, and this may be one reason wh why it's happened, can you also explain how even though common law e evolved uh, from pagan tribes in Northern Europe, as you write about, how did it end up in the hands of the scripture and evolving to what it, it became at its height? Well, uh, my conclusion is looking at history and trying to trace it back, which I've tried to do in the book and trace it back to the tribes, the Germanic tribe that lived at the base of the Jutland Peninsula and on Jutland Peninsula, the, what we call today the Danes, they were the Vikings. Uh, not to say that the Anglos and the Saxons and the, the Northmen and the Swedes were just as sordid and ugly and their methods were just as vicious, but they properly weren't the Vikings. The Vikings were the Danes. And those tribes had a religion. And there are people that say that they can look at what those tribes did and they can trace them back to the ancient Israelites. I, won't, I don't make that claim, and the reason I don't make it is because I can see the connections. For example, the number 12 is looms large in the scriptures, in the Hebrew scriptures. And you have to ask yourself, where'd that come from? And how is it the number 12 looms large in the, in the scriptures and also looms large in our common law and in our common law tradition, what we call our common law tradition of measurement, which is 12 inches, 12 feet, and the the 12 figures big in all of that. Uh, but I'm not willing to make that claim because I can see that the trace is lost in the fog of antiquity. So I go with what I've got. I don't want to speculate. If I feel like I know something for sure and I can uh, show it in history, and it appears that the religion that these tribes had, including the Celtic tribes that lived around there too, that came to Britain. And I'm convinced, and uh, I'm, I'm just repeating what other people have spent their lives studying, that those tribes were, and the Anglos and the Saxons and the Danes and the Germanic tribes were all pretty much the same people. But the puzzling thing about it is the Celtic tribes spoke such a different and language from a different family of languages. Their tongues were different. But they ended up coming to Britain. And Algernon Sidney, back just uh, right after our country was formed, wrote a book called Discourses of Government. And he made the point that the Celtic tribes and the Germanic tribes, even coming down into France, those tribes down there, their law and government was not only alike in general principles, but strikingly alike, I'm quoting him, strikingly alike in particulars. And by the way, Algernon Sidney lost his head for writing that book in uh, about 1690, right along in there. And uh, he was, uh, his book was required reading at the behest of Tom Jefferson for all students at the University of Virginia when it started, when he started it, I should say. But those tribes had a religion. I'm taking too many rabbit trails, Jerry, but those tribes had a religion. Well, it, the religion said this. It said that veered. The thing that they said was the final analysis, it was the final arbiter of right and wrong was called veered. And we say today weird with a W. They pronounced it as a V. And, and uh, they said that the the decrees of Veard are unchangeable, unchangeable. Well, the decrees of our God are unchangeable. We know that. 
Uh, he sits in the heavens. He does whatsoever pleases him and his. He never changes. Hebrews chapter 13, heaven and earth pass away. His law, him, his decrees never change. There was a similarity there is what I'm saying. You want to say something, Jerry? I didn't want to interrupt you. No, no. Uh, the, why did he lose his head? What was the, because I, I remember reading that part in your book where he apparently had a very unjust trial. Oh, and yeah. I was hoping you would expand on that first and then we can go back to the lawyer training. Well, uh, you know, our thing about, um, the common law and the fourth amendment and the fifth amendment, those are ancient rights. Those weren't something that our founders made up. That's part of our common law tradition. They just put it in writing, said the government's going to respect these fundamental rights because fundamental rights are direct from God without any mediator direct to the individual. Well, when they went to go after Algernon Sidney for writing that book on called discourses of government, they of course had to get evidence against him. So they busted down his door without a warrant which was against the law in those days. That was in the late 1600s. They busted down his door without a warrant. They took the manuscript of his book, and they used that as evidence against him. Now, Algernon Sidney in those days called himself a Republican. Well, that meant in those days that you believed uh, the legislature should be sovereign and not the king. Now, that's that's generally what it meant without getting too deep into it. But that's they had that feeling that the king shouldn't have a divine right. That's law of the city. The king... Uh, the law of the city says the, 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 the head man doesn't answer to anybody on earth. And nobody can question him, no matter what he does. James I of King James Bible fame, that was, his, that was his conviction. And by the way, all of the translators on his translation team had to swear to that just to be on the translation team. That's what they did to him. And they did it without, they did it without, without a warrant. And that's what they used to convict him. That wouldn't stand up if they'd have followed the law. But uh, he was a Republican in the sense that he believed that the only option they had in England at that time after the Norman invasion was, well, if the, they, they, they thought like most people, well, if the king's not in charge and doesn't have the final word, somebody's got to have the final word. And we'll say Parliament has the final word. Well, that doesn't work too well either. They became as tyrannical after the English Civil War as the crown. And the legislatures and the colonies from Pennsylvania tried that after a war from separate uh, separation from Britain, they found out that legislatures are more tyrannical than governors. Yeah. Well, we don't, we don't want that in America, but we have learned and they didn't, they didn't get, they had forgotten what the common law was. The common law is the three branches of government are in a Mexican standoff that never ends. And that's the way you can experience freedom. Yeah. Well, why are we losing this among the legal profession, losing all this knowledge? And and do you see our common law traditions being undermined by how lawyers are trained? No question. Back about 2006, thereabouts, um, the dean of Harvard Law School, and as you know, Harvard's always been kind of a bellwether, and professors from Harvard, Harvard teach in all the law schools. Now, when I went to law school, we had professors that went to school at Harvard, had two or three of them. They, they're feeder schools for professors, and that's the way they keep the legal tradition ingrown. Well, whatever happens at Harvard is going to filter through, and some of the other Ivy League schools, too. I recognize that. Not to say that Harvard's the best law school in the world. matter of fact, um, I wouldn't, uh, I'm glad I didn't go to Harvard for that reason. I think that they're off. But here's what they did. Not that I could have got in anyway, Jerry, but here's what they did at Harvard. The dean at Harvard now sits on the Supreme Court of the United States, the dean of Harvard at that time. And the dean of Harvard said, we're going to get rid of the first year common law courses. 
And people kicked back, said, wait a minute, you can't do that. Well, nobody cares about that anymore. We're in a world system now. We need to be teaching the law of the city and international, different forms of it, international law, administrative law. And so some of the first year common law courses were done away with. Now, you can go to the internet and look this up. And I was on top of it back when it happened. I was reading the comments of all the lawyers in the country as they were following that. But uh, this particular person is one of those on the Supreme Court. I'm not sure that this person knows what sex this person is. I don't know that I know either. But um, she was wound up. She, there I said it, was wound up and bound up in her whims and difficulties, as most of all of us are to varying degrees, but her to an extreme degree. Well, that's the kind of mentality that gets themselves in positions of power and gets their fingers on the levers of power and then force this stuff down people's throats. And then the next thing you know, uh, people don't know any different. Uh, the comparative law is not taught, uh, and it's not thought to be any different. If you can't, lay, you can't even know the common law. What is it? People ask that constantly. They think some people say, well, it's court opinion law. No, that's not it. Some people say, well, it's, uh, it's um, stare decisis. Well, it's pretty much the same thing. That's not it either. Um, the common law is elusive, and if you, it's adversarial. Say that. Uh, you go to court in common law, and, and you have battle by trial, which is uh, akin to trial by battle. Uh, the rules are the same. The rules of dueling are the same. Uh, the dueling was a popular thing at one time in, in America. Um, it's a good thing it isn't now. We've replaced it, as England did. It took them a while. It took us a while. We replaced dueling, uh, trial by battle, with battle by trial. But those are common law concepts. And we, because our system is adversarial, we go to battle, uh, inquisitorial in the rest of the world, uh, we can't even know what our common law is unless we can lay it down beside the other system, the inquisitorial system called the law of the city, and show the differences. If I want to know what an insect is, I learned this in biology class in high school, uh, I had to learn uh, how to compare and contrast an insect, I remember this, with a, uh, an anthropod. An anthropod has an exoskeleton, I remember. Uh, he doesn't have bones on the inside. His bones are on the outside. Whereas um, an insect has um, uh, three body parts. Uh, he's got six appendages called legs usually. Whereas an, uh, an, an anthropod has eight. Uh, you know, a spider, a lobster, or a crawdad, critters like that. Well, if you can't put them down beside each other and compare and contrast, everybody thinks, well, these are just bugs. They're all the same. No, they're not the same. Well, the same thing is true with our common law, the law of the land and the law of the city. That's why we call the subject comparative law. You can't understand. You can't understand or fully appreciate the law of the land unless you lay it down beside the law of the city and say, well, now, how's this different? Oh, this is adversarial. This is inquisitorial. So torture is okay <laughs> with the law of the city, which it is, by the way, to varying degrees. Oh, over here at common law, we have the right to trial by jury. Jury is the jury is the final arbiter of the facts in a common law tradition, and fundamentally it is. And over here, uh, they don't have any jury at all. And then separation of powers, co-equal branches of government, co-equal. That it means the, the courts don't trump the other two and vice versa to the other two branches. Well, they don't have that in the Civil law tradition, there are no dissenting opinions of judges in the rest of the world. Why? Well, they're afraid that people will think the government's divided on a particular point and it will turn out to, they'll, people will be disrespectful to government. Well, we found out that's not true. We demand that our judges write dissenting opinions and disagree. 
Those are the kind of things that we have to be able to do to con compare and contrast. And that's not taught in law school. It is the spirit of the times to say that there is no distinction. One other point I want to make about that, and this is a biblical point. The definition of intelligence, according to God's word, is the ability, the honed ability to make distinctions between things that to everybody else looks the same. Ye shall be holy as I am holy. That word holy, kadosh in the Hebrew. That, that means the ability to make distinctions between, fundamentally, in the book of Leviticus, for example, between clean and unclean, or in the law of God, between men and between women, between children and between parents, between up and down, between right and wrong, between saints and saints, between black and white, between this water and that water. Uh, and that ability to do that, and it's a honed ability, the Bible tells us we have to work at it, to hone that ability, that's called holiness. <laughs> that's called kadosh. In the New Testament, hagias, translated saints. There's nothing holy about the word necessarily or holier than thou about it. It's a word that describes intelligence. The Latin equivalent is the word intelligere, which means to pick out from among others the things that are different, to pick out, to choose. And that's why we call it intelligence, kadosh in the Hebrew. The old English translation is holy. Uh, we need to, these words have become hackneyed. And so the ability to make fine distinctions in our common law, we do that. Justice is only available in individual instances. It cannot be a group matter. Uh, in the law of the city, it's legislation. Everybody has to conform. All the square holes have to be pounded into round holes, and everybody has to conform to the broad brush of legislation no matter what. The law of the city is end. The ends, well, it's result-oriented, so the ends justifies the means. The common law is process-oriented. We let the chips fall where they may, and the result, we don't know what the result is. We're just going to follow this process and trust God for the result. And God says that. He says, do not be afraid of the face of any man. He says this in the law of God. Uh, the he says this to the judges and jurors of Israel. He said, you don't be afraid because why? Because if you follow the process, he says, the judgment is mine. And that word judgment, by the way, uh, shafat, a misfat, with the, 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 the participial form, it governs, it governs the process. It's the word that talks about what process is to be followed. And the result belongs to the Lord. It isn't your result. You just cookbook the process. I'll take care of the result. He says the thing, Jesus Christ says the same thing in Matthew chapter 18. He says, after he goes through that process of you have a, an offense against your brother, go talk to him. If he doesn't hear you, take a, witnesses. And, and if he doesn't hear you, re, tell it to the, to the assembly. Well, he says, if you do this, follow this process. Whatsoever you have bound on land is bound in the skies. God ratifies the result if you follow the process. And by the way, that just isn't a matter of our courts and law. That's a matter of the Christian life at every point. That's what God wants us to do, is to learn his way of living life. Back can you repeat that, Brett? Can you repeat that, that very last comment? Because you're, the internet kind of caused you oh. to freeze up a little bit. Just oh, that last well. sentence. Mm -hmm. You might wow. turn off your video. Oh, okay. It will get, it, it'll be a little bit better use of your broadband there. I don't even know how to do that. So let me, <laughs> let me just try it again. That's how technically challenged I am. I thought you were on. I thought this was a live visual broadcast, but I guess it is. 
but no, no, I get to edit it. Oh, okay. Well, at any rate, um, let me see what it was. Did I say, I said that the, the process, oh, I said, God tells us in his word, in older Testament and newer Testament, that don't worry about the result in a conflict among men and all sorts of conflicts bob forth from the flux of human relationships. And he, God says to us, follow my process in dealing with them. Don't just try to figure it out. Follow my process. And if, if you follow my process, I'll take care of the result. I'll ratify the result. Don't worry about it. The judgment is mine. That's the beauty of the Christian life. I'm not the judge. I'm the man that's supposed to insist upon due process. And I shouldn't be worried even as a lawyer. Uh, oh, I want my client to win. Yes. But that shouldn't be my focus and my chief focus. My chief focus as a Christian man is the process to make sure that due process is followed. Because if due process is followed, we have the best shot. Well, we say even in the legal tradition, Jerry, we say a bad process, unreliable results. I've heard that over. And it's true. That's our common law tradition. Fair play. That word doesn't exist in the rest of the world. That's an English phrase. Fair play and substantial justice. Fair play. You fought me a fair fight. That's a common law, common law phrase. That doesn't exist. And the rest of the world in France and Germany used to make fun of the English because they were always talking about fair play and a fair fight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to turn it over to Roger now. I'm going to jump to a practical question. Y'all interested in lawyers. I'm interested in, in uh, the next generation of Mexicans, for one, and, and as a, an American citizen, the meanings of these words has been lost. Uh, the average person doesn't understand what common law means, uh, what the law of the land means. They think it's whatever the Congress passes or the Supreme Court approves. I was talking to a person about uh, the IRS ignores due process, and he listed a bunch of regulations about sanctions they can approve or not. I said, that's not due process. Those are regulations. That isn't about determining. They determine the facts and make a judgment. And uh, the attempt to control it is by regulation of what they can sanction. It really isn't due process. So uh, nobody knows what it means anymore or the jury. So uh, on a practical level, uh, one of the questions is how do we recover that at the, the level of the folks? And the second one is uh, if you get caught up in this thing, where do you how is the best way to navigate your way through uh, a system knowing that most jurors have no idea? what they're supposed to be doing. They're intimidated. I've seen the judges in, I've watched judges intimidate juries. Uh, they don't know what to do. So yeah. I suppose that's something you have to process as a Christian with a lot of prayer and uh, so forth. But what do you think is, or what would you suggest as some steps to take uh, mm -hmm. if you get caught up in one of these situations where you got a choice between a judge or a jury, uh, can you still get justice from a jury? And the answer is yes. I'll have to start there. Yes. How do I know? I've seen it and I've experienced it myself. Mm -hmm. I've gotten justice from the jury when I was, when I thought that there was no hope. And I've seen it happen with other people too, but it doesn't always happen. Uh, but fundamentally, I don't want to forget to say this. You're down in Mexico. Mm -hmm. Mexico used to have a constitution called the constitution of 18 and 24. Mm -hmm. And some people where I'm from, right close to where I'm from on the Wabash River there, 
were persuaded by an influential man in Texas to come to Texas. And they went to Texas, and they were two preachers. It was against the law to form a Protestant church in Texas, and they were Baptists. And I know Baptists say they're not Protestants, but that's the way the Mexicans looked at them. Yeah. And they, they organized their church up in uh, Crawford County, and uh, they took it down to Texas because they thought that they could get around the law that way. And the name of the family was the Parker family, and they built a fort down there called Fort Parker. And uh, Cynthia Ann was the one that became famous in that movie with John Wayne, you know, with uh, the searchers. Mm-hmm. Right. That was a fascinating story. But behind all that, the promise was of the Mexican government. And the reason they came down there with 20,000 other Anglos, as the Mexicans called them, was because they were assured that Mexico would adhere to the Constitution of 18 and 24. Well, the Constitution of 18 and 24 uh, was lifted in substantial part from our own Constitution. Uh, phrases and words and concepts, and that's why so many people went down there. Well, the Mexicans, though, like uh, we're getting, they didn't use that constitution. It was their constitution. They never used it, and the reason they never used it because it didn't mean anything to them. They didn't. Mm-hmm. There was nothing to inform it. They lived in a law of the city country. They don't have a frame of reference to understand. That's it. it. And there, if your frame of reference, and I'm quoting, he who never quotes is never quoted. I'm quoting Fratcher here. Uh, if your frame of rest reference is not the Bible, at, at bottom, if that's not the critical mass of influence among a people, then their government will be the government of their uh, fundamental government. Their government of their country will be the fundamental government of the dominant religious institution of that country. Mm-hmm. That's what Fratcher said after a long study. He wrote a paper on it. I've got it around here somewhere. And I look around. And I say, yeah, that's true. You can't go into another country and say, well, we're going to have freedom here. When they're Islamic mm-hmm. or like Vietnam, uh, we're going to have freedom in Vietnam. No, they were under the French, the French code of Justinian, the French form of the code, the code Napoleon, and still are as far as I know. Every communist country in the world has been under that code. Um, call it what you want. Put a label on it. But if you're in a place like that, and I speak as a, as a fellow that reads about it, I'm not like you. You're being practical. You're down there doing something. Uh, but I, I do think this is true from my study. This is my studied opinion, the way I like to say it, not my ex- definite experience. Mm-hmm. But the only answer to men's problems is to commune with God. And the only way to commune with God is through the scriptures. What God has given us is the revelation of his will. And to know that, that his way, W-A-Y, of doing things is a way. If, if that becomes part of your religious experience, your response back to God, and your response to your God is going to be the result of your theology. You know, religion focuses on what man does. That's He responds to his God, re laguerre. Uh, theology is the, trying to understand who God is and what he's like and his will. Well, you get your theology down a little bit, and then your response will whatever you deem to be your final arbiter of right and wrong, Roger. You know, religion or your God. Your God is whatever you take to be final arbiter of right and wrong in individual instances from whose decision there is no appeal. Mm -hmm. Your final arbiter of right and wrong in individual instances from whose decision there is no appeal. Well, of course, the Christian man says the maker of heaven and earth is my God and his son, Jesus Christ. He has all authority on land and in the sky. And it is his way that I want, his way. I'm seeking to get on a path here. Well, if that's my fundamental understanding of life, as John Bunyan so well illustrated, that's not the Bible, but it was a well-illustrated uh, book about what God, what the Christian life is. Mm-hmm. But if I believe in my heart of hearts and all I know is that there's one man 
that is the final arbiter of right and wrong, he's the Pope of Rome, well, I'm going to have a hard time being anything but comfortable with a government like that. Uh, I, I uh, concluded, I observed, I had read a lot about positivist law, mm-hmm. and we're still living with that from about 1867 on. They took over the school system here, and uh, the guy named Barreda was behind that, and uh, I think it was August Comte he learned from. So the, the Mexicans built beat the French on the battlefield, but they lost to them in the world view area and they're still suck they're still sucking wind because of that yep. and their Otto Scott said their constitution of 1917 is the first communist constitution in history which I thought was interesting so you got it dawned on me from reading your book that uh, we had we went from canon law to positives law which both are civil law systems yeah. Yeah. so we don't have a frame of reference for what that's like then most of our missionaries come here are pietistic over the last Protestant missionaries or liberal. So we still don't connect up. We have, we have this dualistic mentality. We still don't connect up. And I've been trying to figure out how to teach that God's law is what ought to, what ought to govern. And of course, other missionaries uh, get and are, uh, you know, they trash you because they say, wow, they want to take over the government and impose God's law. So that's not the way it works. Uh-huh. But uh if you don't, what are your ethics? As a matter of fact, one of the things that was really disappointing here was the state of ethics of most missionaries. Um, and that was really disappointing. So, but I, I'm working in, a, I've got a, I just kind of fell into this. You know how uh, life is sometimes what happens when you're planning something else. Uh, so I, I got a K through 12, K through 12 school out here, a, a Christian school. We're not in the system because we're not going to give up our Christianity for what the state wants to teach. Uh, it's it's uh, the president of Mexico has more power than any other elected official on the face of the earth. They believe he probably uh-huh. does. Uh-huh. So the question is, in a in a school, a K, let's take a K through twelve school. What kinds of things could I incorporate to build a frame of reference in these kids to understand that how their faith in this way? It's in the Acts talks about it. Calls it the way. And that it's understanding. It's an interesting understanding of what it means. So what kinds of things could we do? I mean, we repeat the Ten Commandments every morning. Uh-huh. Uh, we pray the Lord's Prayer. We sing a martial hymn to Christ. We don't sing the national anthem or make any kind of oath. Uh, if the the uh, pledge, you think the Pledge of Allegiance to the United States is bad. You should see the Pledge of Allegiance to the Mexican uh, flag. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So what would you suggest as a kind of things to incorporate in the cur- curriculum uh, from the beginning, I, I see some results in what we're teaching uh-huh. in the kids naturally pick it up and their sense of what's right and wrong uh-huh. is is heightened. But have you got some suggestions or any experiences with that? I have an experience, a suggestion based on an experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jerry said at the beginning, and I'm glad that you brought it up because I wanted to respond to what she had said. But uh, there were so many things to talk about. That yeah. was this. She said that this book, Excellence of the Common Law is, well, I don't know what word she used, but the idea was it's ostentatious. It looks like a, a cinder block. It's so big, you know, a thousand pages, 958 pages. Well, here's what I've discovered. Rick Green, Rick Green used to be a legislator down there in Texas. I met him when I ran for office a long time ago in Washington, D.C. And then he was on the uh, radio program with... Uh, the fellow that uh, has wall, uh, an organization called Wall Builders. David Barton. Yeah, David Barton. Well, David Barton and Rick Green interviewed me one time, and I knew, kind of known Rick, and that's how they made the contact. And 
about the book. And Rick is a lawyer, and I think he ran for Supreme Court position there in Texas after he was in the legislature. Right. But he said uh, to me, and he was being nice, he said, this book's too much for me. It scares me. I, I, it's, it's over my head. Well, I laughed. I don't think it was over his head. But there are plenty of lawyers that have told me it's over their head. And I've found that the people that have advanced degrees have trouble with my book. But I have found that homeschool moms and dads that have high school educations read it to their children in sections. Read so many pages a day, two or three pages a day, and they'll read through the whole book. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know as well as I do, I, don't, I think you probably know it better than I do, being a teacher in a school that children's minds are sharp. <laughs> They're not weighed down like us older folk with a whole lot of baggage. And boy, they can pick up on stuff quick. And I think it's important to read that kind of thing. Read the Bible to them, of course. That's more important. Well, we, yeah, that's part of their education. You do that. But, um, give me permission to translate it? Say again. Would you give me permission to translate it? To tra Oh, yeah. Well, as a matter of fact, I think that's a great idea. I, I had never had anybody talk about that, but sure. You apparently know Spanish well enough. You could whip through it and just write it out as you go or type it out. Yeah, I'd like to. Well, yeah. I have helpers. I have helpers. Oh, okay. I have people and, uh, and uh, editors and checkers and all that. All I need is funds. <laughs> oh, well, in other words, uh, you need time to do it, you're saying. Time, time. And uh, I have people that are, I have a, there's a young, there's a woman that uh, helps us out. She can, in part time, can translate 13 pages a day. Wow. Uh, and uh, I pay well, her well, about. Maybe, uh, uh, maybe you all can talk about that yeah. after the program. Yeah. So uh, I need to raise money. I need to raise some money to do that uh, besides sport and school. But uh, that that seems like a good idea. I was thinking also of giving them case cases and setting yeah. up. One of the things that we do here, uh, by the way, without even really before I even read your book, is that when a kid comes up to you and says, so so is doing something. Well, bring me bring him here and let's have a trial. Oh, let's have you yeah. you two face each other off and let's let's determine We've, in other words, you call it a process. I wasn't even thinking about that. I used to do that when I was when I was doing Article 15s. I, I uh -huh. religiously followed a process so I wouldn't be unjust. Yeah. So the, the kids are starting to talk about it and understand, uh, you know, how to make peace as a as a Christian. How to uh, I've, I'm a trained peacemaker with the Peacemaker Ministries. There, that really uh -huh. helped. That was an eye opener. But. Oh. Uh, the, the kids talk about that. We're going to have, and the teachers, the, they're actually supervised. They're moms and dads. They're not uh, professional. I don't hire anybody that's had an education in education because they don't know how to teach. But moms and dads with their children here in the school are our supervisors. And they have learned to deal with these things by getting all the facts and determine what the rules are. And let's, let's determine what the sanction should be according to what we've previously agreed. Uh-huh. So, there seems to be a, there's a natural sort of a learning going on there. Reading the book would be great. And uh, I was thinking about actually teaching them for the older kids, uh, setting up situations where they could play court and be a jury and, and make uh -huh. decisions. That might be something to try as well. Well, and, and that's important, of course, uh, the process. Uh, I've come to the conclusion over the years also that the foundation of all good government, if there's going to be any at all, uh, comes down to not what happened in the White House or the courthouse or the state house, but what happens in your house. And that comes down to fundamentally mm -hmm. a relationship between a man and a woman. If there's a family, 
Mm-hmm. And the respect, or and the respect that other people have for the jurisdiction that God has given individuals, uh, respect for jurisdiction is respect for the man or woman. That's what mm-hmm. I've discovered. And there's a process that goes without with that. And the the older I get, the more my eyes open to the whole idea of due process. It's not just in the legal profession. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's a it's a matter of my life and my relationships with others every day and those closest to me. The ones that I'm with the most, that's where the process has to function, uh, just like Jesus Christ describes it. That's the foundation of government. But these are suggestions, Roger. I, I can't prove that that's the... I do know that the scriptures are fundamental to good government. And I am convicted that God's people, God saves his people, makes them safe, gives them a new birth for foremost one reason, that we would show good government to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a couple reasons. Number one, to provide evidence to the condemnation to the ones that God wants to condemn. He says it just that way. And I tell my clients, look, you're not having good luck in court or good luck or good fortune. <laughs> you're mm-hmm. not having prevailing success. Just remember, every time you try to persuade somebody in power that of, of what is right, what is true and what is lawful, you're acting in the capacity of a prophet. Mm-hmm. And whether or not they respond is not your responsibility, whether they respond the way you want them to. But it's our duty to show, to do it, and to speak it where appropriate, uh, what the law, the process of God is in every situation of life. And I have found, and I'm finding increasingly, that's a full-time job. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it pays a lot. But <laughs> no, it doesn't. And it gives great adventure and great meaning to life to have a job and know that's what all of us are supposed to do to the degree that God has given us the ability to do it in the circumstances. Well, I, can I jump in here one? You bet. We, uh, we've been talking about uh, application in other areas than law, but as a lawyer, one thing I've become very concerned with is all the wrongful convictions that are coming to light and the withholding of evidence by prosecutors and uh, other issues that have come up in Texas with regard to how the Henry Lee Lucas uh, case was handled. That was the supposed uh, serial killer that they said was killing people in uh, Texas in the 80s, which yeah. has come to light that that a bunch of the, the that a bunch of false confessions were elicited and that others did those crimes. So how can we deal with this? Because I really believe that God's standards for evidence are being ignored by our courts. And I'm sure under the common law system, they probably are supposed to be honored. So what can we do about that? Well, you make an excellent point, And it is important. If there's anything that ticks God off, it's... Uh... That kind of thing going on in our in our courts, and you can go read the prophets, and that's all they talk about, pretty much. And this thing about evidence, I've come to the conclusion, Jerry and Roger, there are two fundamental areas of law that uh, are being ignored, and that's the, the law, common law of evidence, and yeah. the and the, of contracts. In other words, the covenant, as the old timers said, but I just like to say the law of promises. And uh, but when it comes to withholding evidence, that's a matter of due process. The other fellow is supposed to have a crack at exonerating evidence and the prosecutor won't show it to him, et cetera. One thing we can do is uh, we can scream and holler about it. We can say something that can be done. And if there is any remedy in the courts that's open, if the courts are open, I say, let's go to the courts and keep going to the courts. And that's not easy. 
And uh, as Justice Jackson said, uh, your rights are only as valuable as you or some lawyer uh, thinks they're, they're valuable. And if you don't have the ability to not be intimidated by uh, judges that want to intimidate, and they do, and uh, lawyers that try to intimidate, and they do, and they do it evilly, it's wrong, uh, intimidate poor people that can't afford a lawyer, just run over them, um, they're going to pay a horrible price. But what God wants us to do in that situation is to help him pile up evidence. You know, God knows everything. He knows who's guilty, who's innocent. He doesn't need evidence on the outside. He knows the minds and hearts of men. But he wants to glorify himself by making sure that when he he drops the hammer in justice, that there is overwhelming evidence that he is just and true and right. And that's what he wants us to do. He wants us to follow his processes in the courts and outside the courts and to insist upon due process. And we do when we appeal cases. You know, we take to, uh, our, our officials in America take an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States from all enemies, foreign and domestic. I've taken that oath now, this is amazing, at least six times. And there's a reason behind all that. But you, just because I took that oath six times doesn't mean I didn't have the duty to do that before I took the oath. Every American has a duty to support and defend the Constitution. What's the Constitution of the United States? It's the, it's the law of the land. What's the law of the land? It's due process. It's our common law. And that's the Constitution. That's what it is. It informs our Constitution. We have a duty whether we've taken that oath or not. The oath doesn't give us a duty. It, only, it just ex- it, 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 it <laughs> raises the level of, 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 of recognition of the duty. That's what it does. does. But in common law countries, it, that oath has two parts. Our Constitution requires every office holder, state and federal, to take it. Support the law of the land. Support our Constitution, the Constitution, the law of the land. We are to defend it. Well, when we defend the law of the land, what are we defending? We're defending the land. And when we, uh, to, and that's enemies domestic. That means we're willing to serve on the jury and go into court and make arguments. All of us, not lawyers, everybody. Defend your jurisdiction because God gave it to you. And if you don't defend it, you're despising your jurisdiction. You're despising the giver of it. With jurisdiction always comes the duty to defend it. Secondly, Second part of that oath, against enemies uh, uh, foreign. That's the duty to take up arms against aggression. Take up arms. This oath is the oath of the third fair. It's a common law oath. It's ancient. It's not something the founders made up. You can go back. I had documents, copies of documents going back to Alfred the Great that spoke about those things. But that's our oath as a people living in a common law country. And what we're defending is our land. We're not defending our government. We're not defending the scoundrels in our government. Our love in America is to be, as the covenant of God says, starting in the book of Genesis, the land that he has given us. And we are to honor our parents, for example, that we may live long on the land the Lord of God has given us. He has given us a land. And we are to be loyal to that land. That's what we've lost. And the oath that we take is loyalty to the law of the land, which defends the land, and to the land itself to defend against foreign aggressors. That's what our common law is. Without our common law, we don't have that. We don't have a land. We don't have anybody with a conviction to defend it. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's what we have to teach people. People take the presidents, the congressmen, they take that oath. Do they have a clue what they're saying? Answer, no, not in probably most cases. I can't speak to everyone, but I've talked to a lot of people. I ask people, what, just as an example, I've been doing this for 20, 20 years. What is our national motto? And people say, uh, oh, I don't know. Uh, in, uh, our national motto is uh, El Pluribus Unum, they'll say. That's one of the big answers. 
out of out of many one. That's all on our, on our coins. But very few people I've discovered know that the law of our land, or the our not the law of our land, our national motto is "In God We Trust" by Act of Congress. Well, when you start thinking about that, that means a lot. I'm supposed to trust in God. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means I'm not supposed to trust anything else, mm-hmm. living or dead. That means I'm not to trust other men. That means I'm supposed to be like Paul the Apostle, and I'm supposed to not even trust myself, much less trust what somebody else says about me. Oh, our common law tradition has a lot that it offers us, but the words have become hackneyed. We're not considering what has been said, Mm -hmm. and we're ignorant. We don't have to be lawyers. Uh, William Blackstone wrote his four volumes on the laws of England. Really, people say, well, that's the commentaries on the common law, but he wrote those four volumes. In the beginning, he said, this is for young men. Not lawyers, all Mm -hmm. young men. Why? Because we have a duty to understand not all the, just the fundamental stuff. As it says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, it's mentioned Mm -hmm. that now three times. He says there, the only word in the English translation, only place in the English translation of the Bible where I think it says, calls the law of God first principles. I like to say the rudimentary elements. That's what it is. That's what we're to know. What are the rudimentary elements? Well, that stuff I learned in high school. The branches of government are co-equal. Uh, none of them trumps the other. Well, that's, that's rudimentary. Um, we're supposed to know that we have, we have jurisdiction. Each of God has given to each man right on our head without any mediator. Uh, as Wycliffe said, under the open vault of heaven, he has given me absolute authority over my tongue, jurisdiction over my tongue. Oh, does our law say anything about that? Yeah. Our Constitution says that I have governance of my tongue, and I have the First Amendment says I can speak when God wants me to speak, and I can shut my mouth and not speak when he doesn't want me to. That's the Fifth Amendment. And that's just one example. We have many protections like that. And, and it all comes back, all comes back to the fundamental covenant that God made with our grandpa and our grandma, Adam, and grandma Eve in the heart garden of Eden, and gave him a parcel of real estate, and he said, guard it. And take care of it and don't pollute it. Well, that's our duty today. It hasn't changed a bit. We got a land, we're supposed to guard it, keep it from being polluted. How do we how do we let it be polluted? By just allowing and not saying anything when the defilement of the the, the covenants of land tenancy, the covenants of land tenancy. What's that? Well, fundamentally the Ten Commandments. Do we know the Ten Commandments? Can we say them in order? Uh, we need to teach those kind of things. By the way, the Ten Commandments are not commandments at all, except one. The fifth. The fifth is in the imperative mode. The rest of them are infinitive absolutes and a couple of them are some other form of the verb. But the Ten Commandments are end results, commanded. And only the maker of heaven and earth has authority to command end results. And that's what legislators try to do. They don't have the authority to really to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, What's they, an example of them trying to do that? Give us an example of that. Well, saying that, for example, uh, the legislating from the bench and everybody saying, well, yeah, that's the law of the land, abortion. That's an end result. That mm-hmm. has nothing to do with process. We, we you, you got to let doctors k- kill babies if, if the, a, a woman uh, comes and wants that. That's an end result. Um, an end result standard is, for example, thou shalt not murder. Uh, that's mm-hmm. an end result standard. It doesn't tell you the process. Listen, if we follow the processes, for example, um, capital punishment, is that biblical? Of course it is. Uh, but if we follow the processes that God gives us, before we ever executed anybody, I dare say there'd hardly ever be an execution. Because when you go back and read those processes, the due process that God requires, then uh, you, you realize that's going to ensure fairness. And of course, that's the story of the woman caught in the very act of adultery. 
due process, due process wasn't followed. So Jesus said, you can walk, sister. Go ahead. You're out of here. Mm-hmm. And um, But that that's process. The end result standard is thou shalt not murder. But when you add the process, then everything changes. And I find that uh, folk are, are quick to talk about executing people. But I don't find po- folk talking about, well, let's talk about the process. For example, the law of God says if there's a child that's recalcitrant, and he just won't give in to his parents. He won't give honor where honor is due. It's amazing. There's a there's a formula there. And both of the parents have to bring the child before them. And if they both will say the same thing in the exact words, like just like it says there, then maybe the child will be executed. But I dare say that parents wouldn't say that. And I, we have no record in history of that ever happening. Mm-hmm. I think what God is saying there is he's trying to, he's telling us. He's not trying to tell us. He's telling us. Here's how I feel about respect to parents. Uh, I mean, I, I think this is so important that it's uh, a guy deserves to die that would, that would slight his mother or his father. Slight them. That's what the words really mean. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And God tells us how he feels about things and what he wants. And then he adds the process to it for our benefit out of mercy. But he says, my process is everything. It's not some things. The end result standards are the commands. For example, I read an end result standard one time. Um, that um, no firearm shall be fired on a public uh, right-of-way except to kill a noxious animal or a police officer in performance of his duty. What? (laughs) Yeah, that's what it says. (laughs) Well, it's obvious when the courts got a hold of that, they would interpret it correctly. But uh, that's a dictation of that. When you get men dictating end result standards, you're going to get crazy stuff like that. And that's just one example. I imagine I could go to the internet and find a lot of crazy laws that are obviously poorly written. Well, like we the have, IRS code. I was just going to make it related to that. What our Congress does is pretend they've solved problems by creating bureaucratic agencies. And isn't that some a similar kind of a thing? They, they yeah. declare an end result and create a bureaucracy to, to make it happen. And it just messes things up worse than ever. What What is the role of the legislature in a common law system? Our common law, well, yeah, this is developed. The, the Parliament of England, people say, is the immediate ancestor of our Congress of the United States and our state legislatures. And that's true, immediate. But before the Parliament, 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 that's the place when the French Normans, French-speaking Normans got there. They were from Norway, but they'd been on the coast of France about 165 years, and they spoke a bastardized form of French. So they called this this legislative body the Parliament, where people parlay, and that's what they did. But before that, it was really the reconstitution of the old Anglo Dane, the old Anglo Dane Wittengamot, Wittengamot, mm-hmm. and the Wittengamot, Witten is an old Anglo word. Uh, our word wit, uh, our word white. And even the word winter all come from the same root. And it talks about things that are white, like snow, white-headed old men, the Witten, the old men, the Witten Gamot, the meeting of the old men, the Gamot, meeting, Witten, white-bearded men, really. Same words means the same thing as the word in the Old Testament translated old men means white-bearded fellows, the fellows with the white beards. And the Witten Gamot was the older men. And they had absolute control. Well, I shouldn't say absolute, but they had quite a bit of control of the executive branch, the king. A common law king is a limited king, just like the king in the Bible is limited. Under the law of God, he's limited. He's not an emperor. Uh, And a a common law king, you know, King George III, for instance, he said he was king in England. That's a limited position, limited powers. But he said he was emperor. 
in his colonies throughout the world. Well, the rest of the world didn't get upset about that because they didn't know the difference. But here in America, we said, wait a minute, we're, we're, we're cousins to you folk. Uh, we're not, we're not, uh, we're not uh, people on the other side of the world over in India. No, we know the difference, and we're not going to tolerate this. The king is not emperor here. Mm-hmm. But then, by the way, that's why slavery was uh, allowed in the colonies, because if the common law doesn't apply, slavery is lawful. That's, that's the way that works. Well, the common law did apply, and that's why we went to war. But um, the legislature the legislature in America, um, let, me, let me quote James Wilson. One of the, he was on the first panel of our Supreme Court. He said that our Constitution of the United States does not try to establish the common law as the Normans understood it after the invasion of 1066 AD, October the 14th. It tries to understand, we've tried to establish here what Magna Carta tried to establish. Magna Carta tried to reach back behind the Norman invasion and establish the Anglo-Saxon understanding of our common law. He said that's what our constitution and our ideas in America here have tried to be. And that's what they've tried to do in England ever since ever since the Norman invasion was try to get the common law back where it was under the Anglo-Saxons, the Danes, and the Celts try to have a more heightened uh, view of personal property and land rights. And so in America, in America, our Congress is not supposed to be all powerful. Uh, We learn in law school, uh, Congress is king of the Commerce Clause. That's what we learned. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If you can bring the Commerce Clause into it, the courts are going to support Congress. That's Mm -hmm. the habit that they have now. Well, that's that's ridiculous, of course, and it's caused awful problems in America and too much federal power, et cetera, and the violation of fundamental rights. But our legislature, throw that over there, our legislature um, <laughs> in a common law country is supposed to uh, have the power of taxation, yes, and the power to collect taxes, by the way, our Constitution says, isn't that something? Congress has the power to collect taxes, but we're not doing that. And the power, by the way, to to declare war. Those are the two fundamental powers at common law that are ancient. The Wittengamot in England had the power to declare war and the power to say yes to the king, we'll give you taxes. Why? Well, they were the ones that paid the taxes, that's why. But that's supposed to be the two fundamental powers. of, And that's power. The power to take private property from mm-hmm. an American and to take a son and send him off to a foreign land to kill or be killed, that's mm-hmm. power. Well, that is the power of our Congress. And the other power Congress has that we don't talk about much is the power to suspend the writ of habeas corpus. I say that on the authority of Chief Justice Marshall, Justice, uh, J- Supreme Court Justice Story, and Justice Taney. They all three agreed. And when Abe Lincoln suspended the writ of habeas corpus and jailed that we know of over 164 people, men and women, uh, Taney objected. He issued the writ of habeas corpus in one case, and he wrote an opinion, and he made that point. Going back through, he was sitting as a district judge at the time by invitation. He went back through the history of habeas corpus. Well, that's Congress's jurisdiction to suspend that. That's very important because habeas corpus is the great writ. It's not just some small matter with fancy Latin words. So those would be the three powers that I would think of. Suspension of the writ of habeas corpus, the, the power to tax, and the power to, to declare war. Mm-hmm. So all of these regulations that we have and uh, that try to control every part of our life are really not, not appropriate or necessary so much. No, as a matter of fact, uh, 
you've heard of the, oh, what do they call them? The decorations of uh, 97, Virginia and Kentucky. Maybe I've got the words wrong, but what they were saying was there are only four powers, four areas of of criminal jurisdiction that Congress has. Mm -hmm. And uh, now we have over, according to the last count, and the last study I read was in 1997 under Ed Meese, uh, over 5,550 federal crimes and only four areas of crime, treason. Is one, and it's well defined in our Constitution. You have to have treason. Justice story makes that point. If there's no treason, and if it's not defined well, it'll be used by political hacks to destroy the race. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. So treason, counterfeiting the current coin and securities of the United States, that's another area that is legitimate, I would say. Um, violations of international law, that's another one. And uh, there's one more. It's not coming to mind. I usually can rattle those off. Not right now. I'm just human, too. I don't know everything. But there are only four. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've gone far beyond that. Uh, and the legislation that is held up as criminal legislation mm-hmm. by Congress is done so under the Interstate Commerce uh, Interstate Commerce mm-hmm. Clause. You know, the Interstate Commerce Clause says that uh, commerce is supposed to be regular. Regular. That means regularly flowing, and not to be regulated to slow down the flow, but to make sure the flow keeps going. But it is now used to yes. slow down the flow. You know. Mm-hmm. Well, also our administrative uh, state, the bureaucracy is creating, it, along with the legislative branches, creating crimes that are far outside any actions that would ever be considered a crime under common law. And, and uh, in fact, Harvey Silverglate wrote a book called Three Felonies a Day about how every person has probably violated three federal laws a day because of all the, the bureaucratic re- regulations that we have. And I know I practice administrative law, and one thing I've noticed is that that if, if you have a license or if in some way that you are regulated under a bureaucracy, the bureaucrats can come in and they can ignore the Fifth Amendment. They can get papers and documents and ask you questions. And then they can con- turn those over to the uh, criminal investigative authorities to use in court. And what do you think about that? I mean, yes. you, you mentioned Carol Berman in your book yes. who wrote about those dangers. Can you, can you expand on that? Yes. And oh, I can say a lot about it and I've had enough experience with it, Jerry, to know that I don't want to get into that. And (laughs) I mean, as an area of law, it is overwhelming. And I learned the experiences I have had, and it's been in the criminal realm. And what they do is that they say, this is quasi criminal. Well, no, no, it's criminal. Well, if it's only quasi criminal, then your fundamental rights don't attach. You know, that's what they say. And so, like you say, though, they gather, gather evidence, like the IRS gathers evidence in a civil case to use in their criminal case, but then they say it's against the law for us to um, cooperate with each other, the prosecutor and the IRS agent. But they do it constantly. Uh, they all work for the same people. That's the danger. And um, I forget the old fellow's name. Maybe it wasn't Dean Pound, but he said uh, he was a legal philosopher from the 20s and 30s. And he supported Roosevelt in his administrative revolution. Uh, you know, we didn't have administrative law to amount to anything until a uh, hundred years ago, and it didn't really get going until Roosevelt, and then it took over. Mm-hmm. 
And now the yeah. burden's on you to prove that the, the prove that there's a presumption that all administrative regulations are constitutional. The courts accept that as a presumption, and it's almost impossible to overcome, even when it comes to illegal searches and seizures, because I've tried it. It's impossible. The courts won't do it. Uh, they, the government is right, and I have to prove they're wrong instead of the other way around. Now, um, that fellow that said power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, his name was Lord Dalberg Emmerich Acton. Now, he said that in response to the Pope of Rome. That was back in the 1850s. He's an ardent Roman Catholic, Acton was, Lord Acton. And when the Pope came down and said he was going to make it official, that when his haunches were parked on that chair of the Roman emperors in the Lateran Palace, that it was impossible for him to speak air. Mm-hmm. And Acton said, what? He said, I know you fellows have believed that all these centuries, but now you're making it official. That's too much. And he said, there is no doctrine as monstrous as the doctrine that's, that says that the office sanctifies the man. The office sanctifies the man. And then he said, as power increases, the presumption against that power must increase also. But it's the other way around, by official proclamation of our courts. As power increases in America, presumption against that power uh, lessens. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but Acton said, no, it has to. And then he said, his famous quote, as uh, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But I want to drop a footnote here. He was an ardent Roman Catholic. And that statement is utterly false. Power corrupts. Uh, but he took the Roman Catholic position that um, says that a person is born with a blank slate and he's not corrupted. Mm-hmm. Of course, as Christian folk, we ought to accept what the Bible says. Men are corrupt. Uh, nothing corrupts men. Men are corrupt. Mm-hmm. And um, it is true that the power exacerbates the corruption. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, the opportunity and all. And that's very dangerous. So I get what I'm not against what Acton said there. I just wanted to make that point that I don't agree because I know better. And it's a subtle difference, but it's a fundamental difference. Power never corrupted anybody. But it is true that um, as the power increases and the man has a badge and a gun or he has the federal U.S. marshal badge, whatever he's got, uh, the courts now say that he's right and you have to prove that he's wrong. And that's official doctrine from the courts now mm-hmm. well we're at an hour and 20 minutes can we just wrap it up by one little statement from you brent why is common law superior to any other law system that man has established on earth just in a few words because it is consonant with the law of god <laughs> reveal religion as the bible reveals it there are only two revelations let me then elaborate if i may there are only two revelations. I won't talk long, Jerry. That's I won't, okay. There are only two revelations of God's will to man. Only two. Two volumes, I like to say. The one is unwritten. That's the laws of nature. We look about us. We observe the way the world works and relationships work. That's our common law. And then the laws of nature is God written, revealed religion. And those two undergird one another. And support, mutually supportive they are of each other. The final rule in all cases of misunderstanding or apparent disagreement between those two is the law of God written, the law of God written, the Lex Scripta, the Bible. But that is why our common law, our common law is, uh, is so important to us. And that's why we can only experience freedom under it. By the way, support for our common law comes in the Bible in an overt way in Psalm chapter nine or Psalm 19, the 19th Psalm. 
And uh, Paul in the New Testament cites it there. And he says that all men know of God in Romans 1 because it's obvious to them. The evidence is overwhelming. They know that there is a maker, as the writer of the Hebrews says, because they see all things that are made. You see a house, you know there's a house maker. That's uh, the writer to the Hebrews point. But also we look about us, uh, Psalm 19, a fascinating psalm in this sense. It's so short, but it's divided into two parts. And in the first half of that psalm, uh, the writer talks about the laws of the laws in nature, specifically the heavens, but he uses literary terms. In the last half of that psalms, he talks about the law of God written, and he uses astronomical terms. It's a beautiful way to structure literature, mm-hmm. <laughs> to make his point that the two undergird each other. God reveals himself in nature, in his creation, and that includes us. We're part of his created beings, his creation, and in the Bible. And and our common law is the nexus that allows us to apply the laws of God written in individual instances, and that's what he calls us to do. Well, thank you so much. Your book is a postgraduate course, and I think this podcast is at least a graduate course. We really appreciate your time and hope I get to, to meet you again and maybe interview you again in the future. It's for common folk, too. I can read it. and thank you both you had a hard time getting me i have a hard time with technology but we got on and i hope to talk to you again good